So we were, the last section we are in really begins in verse 21, James chapter 1, verse 21. And he's talking about that looking into the word and, you know, it being like a mirror. And I made those comparisons. And uh, 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So that sets the premise for the last two verses, which is if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So um, the issue of self-control, and we often you know, make that statement of, oh, it's not religion, it's about relationship. And it absolutely is, uh, you know, relationship uh, with the Lord and then uh, 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, <clears throat> to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one's self unspotted from the world. So there is biblical religion. Um, what, we, what we're talking about when we say it's not about religion, it's about relationship, is the way that man has created man's religion. And, you know, Jesus reference that as you know talking about the traditions of man and uh, how that corrupts the relationship with God so just to um, you know sort of put things in uh, a line here you know if you're following the word living by the word looking at the word and letting it speak to you about your person and your behavior then that's going to change and mold your behavior. It's going to require self-reflection. If, if you are not, if you're just reading the Word and getting a head full of knowledge about the Bible, if you're not looking at yourself and saying, you know, this is who I am and this is how I behave, does that align with God's Word? And, you know, if, you, if you're doing that, um, you know, then, you know, a lot of what the world describes as, you know, counseling, you, you know, you need to examine like, uh, you know, what did you go through in your childhood? How did it mold you? How did it shape you? Well, great, fine. You know, if you want to do that, then that's fine. A lot of times you'll get lost on the path trying to figure out like, you know, what of my exper life experiences actually contributes to this behavior. Okay. Well, honestly, if there's some deep-seated connection, great, find it. But in the end, really all you need to look, look at is your present behavior, right? Does my present behavior line up with the Word of God? You know, and, and if you somewhere along the way say, oh, hey, that has a connection to, you know, these events or this time or this circumstance in my life, oh, okay, great. But in the end, it comes down to, does my present behavior line up with God's word? And, and you know, push that all the way forward. What is the way we should be behaving? Others-centered, right? Selflessness. You know, the death to our own will, our own desire. Humility is at the root of this thing. And honestly, right, I mean... If you haven't figured out that you're a very prideful person, then you haven't even really started in this program, you know, of being a follower of Christ, because everyone is. Everyone is. You know, to what degree? Well, you figure that out. You know, I got I got enough problem with me. And, and you know, I, I love that bumper sticker that just says, you know, only you can cure narcissism. You know, I mean, right? That's the truth of the matter. I've got to examine myself and, and really begin the process. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Those that are the most vulnerable in this world, you know, varying degrees. If we're going to be truly God-centered religious people, it's not only going to result in a selflessness, but it's going to cause us to look for those that are the most vulnerable 
and who have the greatest needs and to serve them, to, to be of service to them. That has lots of different variables along the way, you know, and, and in your environment, um, you know, you may have no widows, orphans, or, you know, very few in your environment, or it may have a different picture altogether, but the vulnerable are always present, and, and the needy are always there, those that we can look to and care for. So, you know, even further down in the, uh, you know, root of this thing is that issue of being selfless and being others-centered in our thought and, and in our behavior. Uh, now, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He quickly gets into specifics of explanation, but um, you know, really need to um, recognize our tendency towards being partial. Um, we, we do that. Um, the ones that we most identify with, um, uh, you know, when I first really committed my life to Christ in uh, the late 80s and began to walk with the Lord, <clears throat> um, the church was going through some dramatic changes uh, worldwide or especially here in America. And, you know, the uh, contemporary church was becoming, you know, the mainstream popular church. And, uh, you know, so there was this attitude of, uh, you know, leather jackets and uh, jeans and, you know, uh, harder rock sort of worship uh, oriented things were coming around. And, and uh, I remember reading an article, I don't even remember what it was, but it was making the point that the swing had gone so far that now there was a developing attitude in the church that unless you were of that mindset, then, uh, you know, you, you had a poor relationship with the Lord, I'm, I'm summarizing. So, you know, whereas the church previously had been of the mindset of, you know, uh, suits and ties and, and dresses and, you know, formal sort of, you know, appearance and a church attendance, you know, and if you were of the hippie, you know, leather jacket, jeans, uh, then you, you were the sinner's. And now that, you know, at that point it was swinging over to, you know, so, so now the leather jacket guys are like, if you show up with a tie, um, you're, you're clearly a hypocrite. And, you know what I'm saying, and you, where does your partiality lie is the point I'm trying to make. You know, there, there are d different groups of Christians all over, and, and we want to be very careful of that mindset that thinks like, you know, I have found God's perfect will, and my personality proves that I am perfectly aligned with Christ. And therefore, all of those that are perfectly aligned with Christ will be like unto me. Yeah, that, that's a really scary mindset uh, to think like that. You know, um, <clears throat> if we'll broaden our vision to the fact that uh, Christ has all kinds of people that he's gathered unto himself. And uh, we can find fellowship with them. It, it, you know, the partiality, he's going to get into the specifics, but I just want to make sure that we're using a broad brush to understand this. That, that you know, the things he talks about specifically about the rich, uh, they have other applications. Too. And, uh, and we need to look to how our heart might be, um, you know, partial. So, uh, again, uh, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, so, um, you know, James, right? Half-brother of Jesus, grows up with Jesus, demonstrates in the Bible that he is not convinced Jesus is the Messiah and 
when they get word that he's declaring himself the son of God, they think he's insane and they go to collect him. So he's clearly not supportive of Jesus' ministry at that point in his life. Now he's referring to himself as the bond servant of Jesus Christ. And what must he now think of himself and Jesus, right? The one he grew up with and and the way maybe he looked down, maybe he looked down his nose at, you know, Jesus is always doing the chores and Jesus is always good and Jesus is always, you know, how many times did these guys hear, you know, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, I, I mean, realistically, seriously, that he's saying, hey, you want to be careful what you think of the lowly person in your midst, right? I, you know, I, is he saying, for years I grew up thinking that Jesus was whatever he thought of Jesus and then came to realize he's the Lord of glory. Wow, you know, that's a big shift to come to the place where, you know, your half-brother is the Lord of glory. And notice he doesn't elevate himself up. You know, it's not like his business card says, you know, James, and then, you know, in parenthesis under it, you know, brother of the Lord of glory. There's a humility, right? Bond servant. There's a humility here that says you want to be careful about what you think about people. In this culture, you could rent rings. Somebody comes in wearing fine gold rings. And you go, oh my, he's so wealthy. <laughs> he could be renting them. Okay? Uh, a modern example, if someone pulls up in their two-seater Roadster Mercedes out front and, you know, hands you the keys and says, park it carefully, you know, and they come in and expect to be, you know, ushered to the front row and handed a cup of coffee. And he could be a construction, you know, worker just like many others around us. And he's just rented that car for whatever, you know. So we don't know. We don't know, you know. You know, maybe it's a lease program. Maybe he doesn't even really have the money to, you know. We look at certain things and we go, oh my, you know, so admirable. They rented rings, literally, to appear more wealthy. You know, if you get invited to a banquet where there's literally going to be royalty there, you might want to seriously consider renting one. One ring would would cause people to think that, well, you were at least acceptable, right? That that was that was, that one ring on your hand was to say in that culture, I have enough spare money that look, I could buy myself a ring, you know. Most of these people that we're talking about had one garment, one, right? You spill mustard on it, oh, man, I mean, you're going to spend a long time doing your best to get that out because last thing you want to do is have to dye the whole thing yellow in order to wear, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, a hot, okay, it's black. We're going black, you know, to hide what was there. If you had a change of garments, like you, you're probably middle class to some degree, Somebody comes in and they're in filthy rags, right? You know, like probably Jesus was, you know, walking around in very humble uh, garments, regardless of what, you know, the false teachers tell you. Jesus was not wealthy. And, uh, you know, James is saying you want to be very cautious. Really, what happens if you do bow down and kowtow to the wealthy person? Really, all that's going on is you're exposing your own partiality. You're, you're showing I'm a man pleaser. You're, you, you, what's being exposed is your own heart. You know, what he describes here as, uh, you know, evil thoughts, right? Becoming judges with evil thoughts. In this culture, right, Paul has to address the church at Corinth in... Uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, because uh, they're having communion and uh, some of the people are literally getting drunk 
and uh, glutting themselves with food. Uh, the terminology literally means eating to the point of painful exertion. And, you know, they're like nodding off from alcohol consumption and food consumption. And there's a slave, maybe that even belongs to them, who is their brother in Christ, who is starving to death in the same meeting. And Paul is saying, this is, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's corruption beyond imagination if the body of Christ is treating itself this way. If, if we are, you know, destroying our own person, we're all supposed to be one in the conduct. If, if you and the body of Christ are favoring one, over the other, and he talks about how the 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 wealthy are corrupt. So he goes on. Uh, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Um, think about the fact that the number of Chinese people that are sincere believers eclipses those in America and they are worshiping Jesus Christ under threat of death. Um, heard a uh, missionary, a modern missionary to China um, speak at a pastor's conference a few years ago and he cautioned us about America's support of China and explained that a massive portion, a massive portion of the factory workers in China were imprisoned Christians. That the people who were true and sincere worshipers of Jesus Christ were, were working in factories as forced labor to produce the goods for America. So he, he took it far enough to stab us all in the heart and say, so when we are buying Chinese goods, we are in fact supporting the forced labor of the Chinese government and the imprisonment of Christians. Uh, you know, so there's, there's something to consider in the whole process uh, of the impoverished people of the world and, and and we are not the impoverished people, none of us. If, if you're living on welfare in America, you're still one of the wealthiest people in the world. You know, uh, most of the people in the world have never had spare change in their life, in their life, let alone presently, right? You know, I, I have... Uh, three locations in my life where spare change gets piled. That that actually puts us in the top 10 percentile. You know, we all look up the ladder and go, oh, well, these millionaires and these billionaires, lump yourself in there. Because the rest of the world, in, in, in uh, Vietnam to this day, a family of four lives inside a one-room shack and their annual income is something less than $1,400 a year. You know, that's, that's crazy. Uh, they, they, as a family, usually eat uh, two cups of rice boiled, so that ends up being a lot more, and four ounces of protein, be it an egg or fish or whatever, a day. Uh, we, we are the wealthy of the world. And, uh, you know, there's something to consider that the impoverished of the world have been granted uh, to be the heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. Uh, you know, we, we uh, as the American church, you know, often, you know, we're bugged if the church service isn't just right. You know, we just... Oh, you know, the sound this week, you know, they, they the guitar fed back a little bit on that one song. I'm just, uh, they did that one song again. I never liked that song. You know, we, we, we have, and it's all about us, me, mine, I. You know, you, you think about this in contrast to what pure and undefiled religion is. You know, the American church is, we're, we're choking on the silver spoon. 
It's crazy uh, the degree to which we don't even recognize our, our, our own condition. You know, it's wonderful if a church, you know, if the people of a church and the church is wealthy and they simultaneously have pure and undefiled religion, a heart that cares for the widows and the orphans and, and wants to serve others. So, you know, consider uh, the, the contrast that we're, we're seeing here. Uh, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point he is guilty of all and he sort of shifts gears after this but that you know idea blends into what we're saying about you know we think we're doing so awesome but partiality has poisoned us so we have to really look at ourselves and uh, you know it's it's a challenging task because uh, we we so very often tend to compare ourselves with one another you have to strip that all away and just say, you know, what is the Lord saying here about the wickedness of my heart, or at least the potential wickedness of my heart, and examine myself and say, am I actually open to caring for whoever the Lord puts in my path? And, uh, you know, really uh, looking at uh, my love for them. So uh, now this next point of discussion, which I say it's incorporated, but you know he says whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. Uh, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now listen, you know if you're thinking like I would have, I would have maybe given that illustration the opposite way or in a different way you know if if i don't murder people but you know i steal things then i'm guilty of, you know i'm as guilty of murder you know you choose something lesser to contrast well the reason i believe he did this is because the jews were all about like keeping the lesser law while they were simultaneously plotting jesus murder so he's saying to the believers, surely you understand this, right? That, that these guys were plotting to kill our Lord and Savior, but they're over here making sure that they, you know, cut up, uh, you know, the, the mint and uh, the, the spices that they received into ten equal piles and then give one to the Lord. Make sure you give one-tenth of everything. But, you know, I'm, I can't right now because I'm busy plotting this murder over here. You know, he's he's putting to them in a way that basically says, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, our, our Lord suffered at the hands of hypocrites like this, so surely we don't want to be reflective of that. We, we don't want to behave in ways that would be similar to that. You know, we've got to look at our heart and understand that if we transgress any of the law, then we are breaking all of the law. He who did not commit adultery also said, do not uh, murder, but if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, the law of freedom for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment i know certainly uh what jesus is saying in matthew chapter 7 has application about judge not lest you be judged the measure by which uh, you know you measure it out will be measured back to you i, I want to caution us again to not take that and adopt the uh tolerant attitude of our culture because uh, you know, you drop down to verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus tells us that you will know the false teachers by their fruits. You know, you will be able to determine. So he doesn't say, do not judge 
in the idea of don't use your discernment. He, he doesn't say that at all. Judgment in Matthew chapter 7, when see, Jesus says, judge not, it's the idea of actually carrying out the punishment, right? You know, if, if, if you walk up to an apple tree and say, this is an apple tree, you're not judging the apple tree, right? You're judging it by its fruit. Now, if you show up with your chainsaw and you say, this is an apple tree and I hate apple trees and you fire up the saw and cut the tree down and, you know, into little pieces and burn the whole thing, you've carried out judgment upon the apple tree. And that's what Jesus is saying. The degree to which you carry out judgment it will be measured back to you. You want to be cautious of that. You know That is why it's in contrast to verse 15 when he says you'll know the false teachers by their fruit. You know, Saying this is a false teacher is not judgmental. Okay? To stand in our culture and say homosexuality is a sin is not judgmental. You know, I, I went to high school with two young men who stopped on a bridge in Bangor and roughed up the homosexual fellow student that was waiting for the bus, then pitched him over the railing to the rocks below where he died. Okay, for me to stand here and say homosexuality is a sin is not the same as killing a man for being homosexual. I love the homosexual. Want them to see, want to see them come to Christ. Want to see them repent uh, of the sin in their life, the same as God called me to repent of the sin in my life. Our culture has gotten to the place where you can't speak against sin. You know, they're arresting people and, and you know, uh, calling it a hate speech crime. and you know, Look, the, you, you guys understand that there's there's no such thing as a hate crime as as per definition, right? Because realistically, uh, you can say all crime is hate. All crime. Okay, I, I think more of myself than I think of you. So uh, really, I'm, I'm hating you by committing my crime. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, whatever crime it is, it is a hate crime. Uh, giving a definition to it is actually showing favor to certain groups within our culture. It's saying they have, you know, they're to be offered better protection than somebody else. You know, I, I mean, if there's a homosexual here uh, with me and a group of people come in and they say we hate homosexuals and they beat up. Uh, this guy that's right here, and then they say, we also hate people that wear red T-shirts, and they beat me up because I'm wearing a red T-shirt. Why should they get a greater crime for beating up the man who's homosexual versus me? I, I deserve the same justice. This is, you know, this is an imbalance. You, know, you want to say that that crime, you know, I, I they're going to be put in jail for a year for beating me up. They're going to be put in jail for... Five years from beating him up? Well, how about we just say, if you're going to beat anybody up, you get put in jail for five years. You know, there, there's no lesser violence or greater violence within the circumstance. Uh, you know, here, as, as we're being, you know, admonished about the judgment according to the law, it is literally the idea of bringing about the punishment. You know, uh, I, I stole things uh, before I knew the Lord. And as I was coming to the Lord, uh, I, there was a warrant out for my arrest. And when I surrendered my life to Christ, I, I went before the courts and said I was involved in that robbery. And, you know, they, they sent me to jail. When they sent me to jail, that's when I received my judgment. It, it wasn't when they said... Uh, you stole things and therefore you're a thief. That's not judgment that the scripture is talking about here or in Matthew chapter 7. It's when the judge said, you therefore are going to jail. That was the judgment. 
Okay, so so here, you know, discernment is something that Christians should use when it comes to punishment. And, and, you know, think about what was going on in this culture, right? Woman caught in the act of adultery, dragged out in the street, they're going to stone her to death. Uh, you know, there are portions of those who, you know, call themselves Christians who literally think it should be the job of the church to go around and, you know, do physical harm to people who are living in sin. Listen, if we're going to start, you know, having gangs of Christians roaming around beating people up, uh, I mean, look out, right? Because pretty much every one of us is going to get smacked at some point. Why? Because we're all sinners. <laughs> it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Does our culture need to repent? Do the sins need to stop? Do we need to put measures in place? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially, you know, as we're watching the nonsense around us, right? You guys have noticed in the news how, you know, all of the defund the police locations are, are changing their tune right now. You know, they're, they're realizing, oh, this is, this is a necessity. And the rest of us are st standing around going, you know, no, duh. You know, I mean, well, like we knew this before it transpired. What, what is your problem? Uh, sometimes, you know, our culture loses grip of reality, literally. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? So now he's he's digging down even deeper into the same subject, right? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, we need to really, uh, you know, understand, uh, you know, we've all probably studied this many times, but we just get our definitions in order, right? Uh, the, he's going to explain the concept, but what he's saying is is absolutely not the concept of doing works in order to receive salvation. He gives really nice definition by the time we're done, but we need to start into this subject with that concept in place. He's saying uh, that you you have to have the outworking of your faith, like when Paul says. Uh, you know, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Um, that isn't th that, um, oh, you know, you, you might be saved, you might not be saved. You you, you got to figure it out. You got to work it out. You got to, it's, it's literally better expressed as saying there must be the outward working of your faith. If you say you got faith and like everybody that's watching is going, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't see any evidence, right? That that old uh, question that the preachers used to ask of, you know, if you were dragged into court and to be tried for being a Christian, is there enough evidence uh, that you could be convicted? You know, not, not just word of mouth, that by your conduct they could say, yes, in fact, this person is guilty of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Could you be convicted? based upon the things you had done. Not the words that came out of your mouth, but the things you have done. Is there, is there evidence? So with that definition in mind, uh, you know, uh, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Um, you know, talk is cheap, right? You know, as they shut the door in your face, <laughs> you're in the cold and, you you know, you just got your tank top and your, you know, swim trunks on and it's, you know, middle of the winter and then you know, you're in your flip-flops and they're saying, you know, be warm, be filled, and they shut the door in your face. You're going to freeze. You're going to starve in a very short period of time. You know, this is what James is saying is that, you know, belief, head knowledge, speech, talk, they, they really don't result in anything. It must be that we're, we're acting upon it. Thus, also faith by itself. If it does not have, you know, works, we would say accompanying works, you know, works that are a result of is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works.
works. You know, it, it must be one and the same thing. You believe there is one God, and I think this is you know the most poignant uh, verse in this discussion. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You know, I mean, so what? You've got a Christian T-shirt and a Christian bumper sticker. Are you living it out? You know, I, I've shared with you before. I, you know, I had a, an acquaintance years ago who uh, we were discussing bad driving habits and bad behavior in traffic, and he said, "You know, that's why I don't have any Christian bumper stickers on my car." You know, and I, I'm thinking, well, no, that's the wrong approach. You know, what I'm saying, you know, I, I, uh, I, uh, I was with my whole family in our car years ago. And we pulled up to this stop sign, and there were fellow Christians that we knew in the car in front of us. And one of the kids said, oh, hey, look, uh, there's so-and-so. Oh, hey, that is. And I gave a little dirt, dirt on the horn. And they pulled ahead a little bit and jammed on the brakes, and you could see they were sort of thrashing around. And, you know, I recognized, oh, they don't recognize us, right? So... Wah, wah on the horn. Without any hesitation, both the driver and the passenger blasted us the bird and smoked it right through uh, the intersection out the other side. My kids were left sitting there with their jaws on the floor like, what? And I had to say, hey, you know, just because they're deacons, no, I didn't. They weren't. <laughs> they, were, they were not. You know, they were. They were fairly new Christians, and you know, it's just you know what's in their heart. They're still growing, but the point is, you know, the, these actions don't match the words. You know, none of it at all. And uh, you know, we just we we swore the kids to secrecy, like you cannot. You know, confront them over this. You can't, you know, and they, they've grown tons, you know, and uh, they, they both serve the Lord now. It just, you know, it was their immaturity at the time. Uh, uh, the point being that our, our faith has to match the actions. These things need to be interlocked and together. You know, if demons had cars, right, you know, they would, you know, their bumper sticker would say, believer. They believe, but their actions don't match their belief system. They, they know full well. They come into the presence of Jesus during his ministry. They fall to the ground, right? Confess who he is, beg for mercy. They believe. They wholeheartedly believe. They are not submitted to. Uh, their works are, are not equal to an accompaniment to the belief system that they have. Uh, that's something very important to recognize. You, you believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That's, that's, that's a backhanded compliment, right? You believe there's one God? The demons believe, and they're trembling. They're scared out of their minds for the judgment that is to come upon them. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith without works is dead. Say you believe all you want. If it's not in your action, then it's meaningless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You know, he, his actions followed his belief system. This, this is something I think that's really critical for us to understand because now you get down to the nuance of your behavior, right? You say that you live by faith, but so very often when we hit the big decisions, are you measuring it out based upon you know, worldly pros and cons? Or are you saying, no, I'm going to stand in my faith right here, no matter what it costs me? 
I'm going to live this out in front of the world. You're going to persecute me for it? Then so be it, right? It, it, you know, Abraham was going to lose his son. And, 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 you know, we learn from particularly the book of Hebrews that he knew God was capable of resurrecting his son, right? Because God had said that by your son, Isaac, your seed will be called. So, so he's saying, look, God made promises based upon this boy. So me going up here and offering him as a sacrifice can't be the end of this, this young man. He, he's going to live. Why? Because God told me that my lineage is going to come through this child. Okay? You know, you face the music on the circumstance, and you're saying, I have to make this decision. Why? Because God told me over here that he was going to carry me through this difficulty. We, we often skirt out around the difficulty, you know, the pros and cons. You get your scales out and you go, well, in this scenario, you know, if I live, then this is all going to But then, I, you know, you also consider this. How many times have you experienced in life where the way, especially the God-given circumstance, turns out entirely different than the pros and cons? We've measured it as carefully as we can. You know, I've described recently that whole issue of, you know, yes, I should definitely buy this truck, not knowing that two weeks later I'm going to lose my job. You know, we, we look at it and we say, you know, oh, I have to make this decision right here. Uh, trusting God through the circumstances. You know, Daniel had to look at the lion's den and say, chuck me in, you know. Everything I'm looking at means I'm going to be lunch, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to say, crank the furnace up. Throw us in. Everything we're looking at says incineration. You know, the examples we have, David had to choose the five stones and go out onto the battlefield against a giant. and you know, let the Lord have his victory. Living these things out. You know, Abraham is given here as the example. You know, this was accounted to him as righteousness, and he was called a the friend of God. Remarkable. The friend of God. Look, if I say that, it's just arrogant, right? Oh, I'm a friend of God. God calls him the friend of God. That's a remarkable, you know, endorsement. A great accolade given to him by the Lord. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? You know, there's a threat of death on her life. They know the spies are in Jericho. And word has gone out. You you give aid or shelter to these spies and we're going to kill you, was what she was told. And she welcomed them and provided them with escape. And the process totally rebelled against uh, what the government was saying she had to do. Uh, she, she chose to obey the Lord. So as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, is dead also. And I think that's obviously the greatest picture. It's so well written by James in this regard. You know, you go to the funeral of a man that you know was an absolute drunkard. And, you know, you stand over his coffin and offer him a drink of whiskey. He, he's not going to respond. Why? He's dead. You know, he was known for his drunkenness. In the back. He's not a drunkard anymore. He's dead. Right? The Christian that says, I am a Christian, and there are no works that are directly associated with that which is a child of God. James is saying they're dead. If they say that they have faith, but you don't see the action, then they are dead. That, that should you know sort of make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. That, that my, my works must accompany my faith. Uh, talk is cheap, as we started with. So, consider. 
A little bit further, verse 1 of chapter 3, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, the stricter judgment partly is in the eternal. Okay? And, and the way it's written it implies that. That if we want to be teachers of God's word, then uh, the Lord himself is going to hold us to a standard. But it has a greater sense that in this life we're going to be held to a stricter standard. You know, if you say, oh, I want to serve the Lord, I want to be a teacher of God's word, brace yourself. Because you stand up and begin to teach, and everyone that is around you is going to put you right underneath the microscope and look at everything that you are. Your whole world, your whole life, everything about it. It, it isn't to slap your hand away from the opportunity of serving the Lord and uh, being a teacher of God's word. It, it's a cautionary moment to say to you, consider what's in store for you if you step up to this plate. You know, if you're, if you're going to you know, learn God's word to the degree that you could teach it to others, and if you have the propensity to teach it to others, know that there is a stricter judgment in this life and in the afterlife uh, that you're going to fall under. It's an intense thing. He goes on to say, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And, you know, over time in our maturity, uh, it's very important that we realize that, that our speech is something we must you know, probably more than most things, maybe maybe it's even safe to say more than anything, we, we have to gain greater and greater control over our speech. You know, the way that we communicate, the things that we are saying, um, you know, that whole mentality that the world has, you know, we sort of venerate and honor loud mouths. You know, the, the person who... You know, they get in a situation and they're boisterous and they jump right into the fight and they're running their mouth. And, you know, they, they'll say things like, oh, I just had to speak my mind. And, you know, everybody that's listening is thinking, we wish you hadn't. You know, it's just, it, it, you know, it's not always smart. I've quoted Proverbs many times where it says that the fool speaks their whole mind. Okay, uh, you know, I, I can't even tell you. Maybe I don't have to because you, maybe you've done it yourself, but... You know, the things we say that we regret, you know, they, they've just escaped your mouth and, you know, it's, they're still sort of echoing in the air and you're wishing you could you know, pull them back and you know, not have said them. Caution, you know, being careful in what you say, really considering how you bridle your tongue as he's saying it here. If we stumble, we all stumble. We all stumble in many things. So in regard to being a teacher, we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. And you shouldn't think of that with the idea of what we say as perfection, meaning flawless. It's the idea of completeness. Okay, it it has a little bit of a tone of uh, you know being without flaw, but that's sort of a minor underscale. It it's really the sense of you're fulfilled, you're complete. I, I think we've all been around. You know, older, more mature people who, you know, something happens and our fiery reaction, you know, maybe we even say something and, and they're like careful. They, they even respond, but they're, they're careful and they're measured and you're left sort of admiring them thinking, boy, I wish I'd behave like that. You know, there's something to learn, right? The, the, the picture of completeness, maturity in, in that behavior. Uh, th that's something to set your sights on. That's something to set your goal upon uh, of, you know, wherever you're at, if you can bridle the tongue, if you can slow down, what did I say last week? If you can say the second thing that comes to mind, you know, rather than the or the third or fourth or, you know, uh, listen, I, I, um, I served a number of years ago now on a, uh, a board for a ministry all extremely mature uh, people 
in that, in particular, two people on that board, uh, older than all of us, more experienced, uh, you know, uh, in in ministry, ministry around the world, had served all over the world in Christian uh, ministries, and uh, you know, subjects would come up in the board meeting, and oh, lots of chatter and reaction, and you know, fiery indignation, and you know, long discussion, and. You know, we'd get all done and everybody sort of like exhausted themselves. And, you know, usually one of these elder men would say, "Um, can I just um, add something? And like what they said blew everything out of the water that had been discussed earlier. And you're left going, well, like, why didn't you just say that like in the very beginning? And it was their thoughtfulness. They're listening. They're weighing out. They're measuring. They're, They're drawing from experience. And when they get to the end, then they have a conclusion that they just offer as input. And it's so wise that everybody there is like, well, yeah, that's that's the direction to go. You know, this idea of control, self-control, and uh, how we can bridle ourselves. He he makes the statement, you know, if if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. If you can recognize that self-control of the tongue, then you can also recognize that they're disciplined in you know all areas, or at least a lot more areas also. That that it isn't just in their speech. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn the whole body. You know that little piece of metal. And their mouth just draw on the rain, and the head comes around, and the whole, you know, animal will fall follow after that. Look at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. You know, massive ship, you know, comparatively small rudder. You know, when you compare it to the rest of the ship, just you steer the whole vessel around in the water. Remarkable, you know, uh, sort of picture that he's uh, giving to us there. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So how great a forest a little fire kindles. You know, he, he moves into this discussion of the tongue being like the fire. And, you know, my goodness, um, I, I don't know how it works uh, i talked to a forest ranger that works on um uh, big forest fires and he said that um arson and i'm not even gonna lay it out but he said that natural fires particularly anything that's lightning strike or caused by nature the fire has a very distinct shape. The burn pattern has a very distinct shape. And anything that is set by man has a very distinct shape. Not like, not even remotely like one another. Always. 100% of the time. Okay? And that's, you know, once it's burned a little bit and they start to get an aerial view of it, they can immediately tell you whether it's arson or they'll find further evidence in the process. But you know, if it's if it's a specific shape, uh, then they don't even look. They're like it's a natural fire. We don't have to waste energy and resources uh, to discover whether this was you know some form of arson. You know, if they find immediately, uh, oh, it's a, a another particular shape. Then they go and look, and they also know they also know that when it's a particular shape of man-made fire, uh, that shape also tells them where to look for for the arson elements. And it's a remarkable thing. Point being, you know, uh, the the tongue it has a very particular destruction, a way that it functions. You know, and you know, truth. What truth, even though it may be, you know, destructive when somebody steps forward and truth is now known and people are getting exposed and things are sort of getting burnt to the ground. Truth is different, right? It, you know, the the telltale difference between truth and a lie is the lie always has to change. Right. Because it's a lie. So you have to cover it up with a lie and you have to add to it with more of a lie. 
You know, the police officers know this in questioning. You know, they question somebody. That's why they pull people apart in the cars, right? Take the driver, the passengers, separate everybody, ask the question. Because even if they've agreed on a story, the story's got to change. If, if it's the truth, then it can't ever change. The tongue, it does kindle fires. And we want to be very careful about being truthful with the things that we say. So some things need to be burned down, you know, verbally, spiritually. Paul says that it's the job of the elders to silence the false teachers that are affecting the church. You do need to verbally attack certain things. But then there are those attacks which are from the flesh, and they are sinful, and they don't produce what the Lord wants to. So the, the tongue, we need to you know be careful of the tongue and how it functions. Look at the ships. You know, the tongue, a little uh, member, boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. That's certainly our own individual person, but can it also defile the whole body of Christ in the process uh, when, when things are left uh, unchecked? It is set on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. The tongue. Okay, a concept. Is it an unborn child or not? Is it a life or not? That's the only discussion. That's the only discussion. Because if it's life, and it is, then you must protect it and defend it. Well, no, they shifted around, right? Because it's about choice. It has nothing to do with choice. The choice was before you had intercourse with another human being. Now that the life has been created, then the only discussion... So, so the destructive fire that was produced by the tongue has killed millions, apparently more than 65 million children. A, a tongue set on fire the course of nature. There are many examples uh, throughout our world and throughout our existence. You know, legalization of marijuana. Look, brush that aside and focus on the legalization of alcohol and what it has done to our culture. Alcohol is far more destructive, far more destructive in our culture at present. You know, I think that marijuana will have its course and it will catch up. You know, I was astonished uh, having some breathing problems years ago. I'd had pneumonia. And, uh, you know, the doctor, I, I go in, I'm saying, you know, maybe this is COPD. He says, you smoke marijuana? I say, no, I don't. He said, then it's not COPD. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, that's the most common uh, result. You know, marijuana is, you know, one of the largest contributing factors. You know, as far as the whole class of COPD, one of the largest contributing factors in our culture is chronic use, whether it's present or in the past, chronic use of marijuana is like, oh, wow, like, why isn't that all over the television? You know, and he gives me a study regarding it that I go home, look up, and sure enough, you know, it'll be interesting to see 10 years, 20 years, 30 down, years down the road, what's going on. You know, I've you know, given you uh, the uh, hot link for the website where the discussion is being brought up that the psychiatric industry knows that the number one cause of schizophrenia is marijuana use. It's the number one cause. Wait, what? You know, wh why isn't that all over the... Why? Because of the money. Greed. Greed. You know, look what just happened in our state this last week. You know, prosecutors... Sheriffs, 
you know, professional workers, 13 of them involved were arrested in conspiracy as they were taking medical marijuana industry and they were gleaning off from that and selling to the black market. In the state of Maine, 13 of them, more than $10 million in marijuana. In the state of Maine. Greed, you guys. As, you know, that's what was involved in, uh, you know, the legalization of alcohol. You know, the tongue, the tongue left unchecked. The message goes out into the public and the ear and the lie that enters the ears. And people go, yeah, I like that lie. You know, I like to get drunk. I like to get high. I like to, you know, yeah, bring it on. You know, the lie goes out of the tongue and enters the itching ears that desire the message that burns a culture to the ground. And this is what we're dealing with. You got to you got to consider how powerful this is. And this is why this is why the word of God is so significant, right? The water of God's word, right? The water, which extinguishes those flames. You know, we we are we are the fire suppression system. We must know the word of God. We must preach the word of God. We must share the word of God. You know, speak these things, study these things, share them in your circles of influence. Anywhere you can to just spray that onto people's hearts and minds that they, they would hear and understand, uh, you know, what it is the Lord would say in truthfulness. You know, set on fire by hell, this tongue. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And that's an absolute truth. All the creatures, you know, to what degree? Various degrees. But we, we have proven that we are capable of this. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude, the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send, send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Hey, listen. I had a critic present in this church years ago. I finished saying that, and he came up to me afterwards and said, you and your Bible are wrong. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And he was some kind of geologist. And he said, we know of many springs that give forth fresh water and salt water from the same location. I said, no, you don't. And he gets all blustered. He starts, I said, oh, yeah, but here's the thing. What happens to the fresh water? It's polluted by the salt water. It becomes a salt water. Okay, so it doesn't matter. That's the point that's being said here, Right. You're not going to show up at a place where fresh water and salt water are coming out of the same spring and think, well, half of it's fresh water. I'll just drink of this. Brackish, right? It's being turned into salt water. That's the point that James is making here. So, you know, maybe you would have never run into that. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? No, no. It's all salt water. If there's salt water present, it's all salt water. It's, it's no good. It's being polluted and poisoned in the process. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt and fresh water. In regard to faith, right? You say you have faith. But then we see vile hypocrisy and we see, you know, wickedness you know, coming out. You say that you're a religious leader in Israel in Jesus' day, but, you know, oh, you're so pious and you're so holy, but you're secretly planning Jesus' death. Um, yeah, no, we, we know who you are. By your works. Your works are showing what your faith is all about. Now we, need to, we need to examine ourselves, right? And he just previously said the word of God's like a mirror. We need to turn this very mirror we just read. We need to turn it around on ourselves. And examine ourselves. I don't need to examine you. You don't need to examine me. We need to examine ourselves and make sure that our faith 
right, is aligned with our works, and our works are aligned with our faith. Amen? Makes sense? So that's the time we have for this evening. Well, if you'll stand with me, we can pray, and we'll pick up right there next week. Father God, we are grateful for the truthfulness and the accuracy of your word. We pray that you would work on each of our hearts, each of our hearts, Lord. We would be humble and honest before your word and recognize the need for the taming of our own tongues. Lord, we surrender to your spirit and ask that you would accomplish your will in each one of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Uh, Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.